We're going to be in Psalm 73 tonight. Psalm 73. Psalm that we should read uh, often. At least once a year you should have a study on it. It's a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a young priest from the tribe of Levi when David brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. Scholars say about 995 B.C. His father, Berechiah, was appointed doorkeeper of the Ark. Asaph was so talented that David put him in charge of the music before the Ark of the Covenant. He was assisted there by his brother, Zechariah. He was probably in his 20s at the time. And so he was a young worship phenom. The main tabernacle and the most senior priests and Levites were at Gibeon. Asaph was in charge of the music in Jerusalem where the ark and the king were. Uh, We know that Asaph kept that position at least until the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem almost 40 years later. At that time, the worship service of the tent of meeting in the tabernacle were consolidated in the temple and the Ark of the Covenant was reinstalled in its rightful place in the Holy of Holies uh, there. Asaph served in Jerusalem all of David's reign and no doubt set to music many of the psalms that God gave David. He was in Jerusalem when God gave David the great promise that he would have a son who would be the Messiah and reign forever. He saw the death of David and the ascension of Solomon and the building of Solomon's magnificent temple. What an amazing time for someone dedicated to the worship of the Lord. I mean, if you're, um, you don't have to be a worship leader, but, uh, you know, if you love worship, but especially if you're a worship leader, a talented and gifted worship leader, can you think of a better time to be ministering than when David is ascending to the throne and when Solomon is building the temple that was on David's heart? He was on the mountaintop as far as spiritual experiences go. Uh, It was the epitome of of what he could have expected. Now, after Solomon's dedication of the temple, things changed rather dramatically. Solomon turned his back on God and pursued power and wealth and luxury and human wisdom, as well as the worship of other gods. To finance these pursuits, the people were oppressed with slavery and taxes. There's a good reason to believe that during Solomon's reign, Asaph's brother Zechariah was assassinated in the temple by agents of Solomon. After Solomon's death, Asaph, now a very old man, saw David's kingdom torn in two. The northern part, restless under Solomon's punishing taxes and resentful at his wasteful luxury, rebelled and took Jeroboam as their king. And the southern part, mostly the tribe of Judah, went with Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And so you had the era of the split kingdom, Israel to the north, ten tribes, two tribes to the south called uh, Judah. In the winter of his years, Asaph surveys the wreckage of his hopes and dreams. It's also been suggested by commentators, and we'll see why as we get into the psalm, that Asaph was himself physically afflicted, perhaps having had a heart attack or kidney disease, And that's based on some of the language that he's going to use in the psalm to describe himself. And that's not a stretch. I mean, he was a very old man at the time the psalm was written. And certainly, he uh, not unusual that he would have some ailments. Now, I went into greater detail because I think we sometimes approach Psalm 73 as if Asaph was having a bad day. That something wasn't going right for him. 
and he just needed a brief attitude adjustment and everything would be fine. He was actually nearing the end of his life and things were not so good and they were not going to get good anytime soon. The nation was deteriorating and it was going to continue to do so. He had been on the mountaintop and that only made his valley that much deeper. He, he had been so high uh, with God that now he was down in a deep ravine. He had walked with God, he had served God, he had worshipped God for all the years of his life. And now towards the end, instead of enjoying the fruit of his labor, he wondered if any of it had been worthwhile at all. That's the more complete context of Psalm 73. And so let's get into it and see what Asaph has to say. Psalm 73, verse 1, a psalm of Asaph, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Good start. Pure of heart designates believers as opposed to the, those just going through the outward rituals. And so it's a, it's a code word for a believer. Not, it doesn't mean an especially pious believer or, uh, you know, somebody that, that is keeping the law in a better way than others. It's just a believer. To those who are true Israelites, those who are saved, God is good. Now, this is what Asaph believed his entire life. It was based on the word of God. It was based on the nature of God. It's what he will still believe even more so by the end of this psalm. And we believe that too. God is good. He's good all of the time. But Asaph's problem, and sometimes our problem, is that the world doesn't correspond to this worldview. God was good, but Asaph was in some terrible, terrible times, and he wasn't likely to have any better times. It wasn't likely that he was going to be healed or, or get over his physical affliction. And as I said, the, the nation wasn't going to come back together anytime soon either. And so verse 2, but as for me, he says, God is good, but in my case, this is what's going on in my life right now, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The prosperity of the wicked had been a constant for many decades. It now finally began to dominate Asaph's worldview. He was on the verge of stumbling, of slipping in his walk. The more he deteriorated, the more the nation sank, and yet the more wicked people prospered. Now, I think we'd all agree that Asaph exaggerated about non-believers in these next few verses, but the gist of it is that too many wicked people really do prosper. And so this is an exercise, these next few verses, in hyperbole and exaggeration. Uh, I, I don't know if you ever fall into this, but when you're feeling sorry for yourself and things are going bad, you like to magnify how bad they really are. And uh, so Asaph takes a look at the wicked and he says, there are no pains in their death. Their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as a necklace for them. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. It's like a Thanksgiving scene, you know. Did you ever eat too much on Thanksgiving? Did you ever not eat too much on Thanksgiving? Anybody have restraint on Thanksgiving? You know, if, if it's there, I'm not saying everybody has the ability to have a big Thanksgiving spread, but if it's there, do you say, no, I've, I've, I've had enough. Uh, I'll have dessert tomorrow. No, everybody's like on the couch with digestive failure, you know, watching football, and, and uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. 
And so their eyes are bulging. They have so much. They have more than their heart could wish. They scoff and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here and the waters of a cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. And so Asaph had been um, contemplating his own demise, as it were, his own physical demise and the spiritual demise of the nation. And, and it seemed to him that the wickedness was prospering, that individual, non-believing, wicked men had all this world's good. He doesn't say it here, but the sense is that God is actually blessing them, and yet they, they call out against God, saying God doesn't know anything, God's not involved. This uh, kind of a deist approach to God that, that is popular with many people, that God, uh, that, sure, there's a God. He created the universe, He got it all going, but it's clear He doesn't want to have anything to do with it, and so we're on our own here. And so Asaph is starting to see these people, and this is their theology, as it were. While these things were not always true in every case, Asaph had seen enough wicked people over the years who did fit these descriptions. This is, this is his ideal wicked man. I mean, he probably knew one or two wicked men who had no pains in their death. Maybe they died peacefully in their sleep uh, with no warning. And, and maybe a few that uh, scoffed and spoke wickedly concerning oppression, and maybe a few over here. And in each category, there was, you know, he could find wicked men who fit that. And so he's, he's putting together his ideal wicked man. He's saying, if there, you know, there's so many of these people, uh, you know, that this is what God is doing or not doing, as were the case. He'd seen enough to, to be able to speak with some. Uh, authority in this area. And so 13, he says, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. Asaph questioned the value of living a separated life, a holy life, in light of the prosperity of the wicked. What good was it if the righteous suffered and the wicked prospered? It's a common thing that haunts, uh, apparently, uh, elderly Christians uh, who have been in the ministry that you start to look back and wonder if it's all been worthwhile. Is that the, is that the walk that God really had you on? And it's easy to exaggerate as you look at people around you and, and you see them all prospering and not having had uh, the kind of... Uh, Walk or commitment or whatever you'd say, and 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 it's it's all certainly pride and it's wrong, but nevertheless it happens. He says in verse fourteen, "All day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning." Now this is one of those verses that gives rise to the thinking Asaph was troubled by some ongoing and serious physical infirmity. Every day he's plagued and chastened every morning, so he. He finally gets to sleep at night. Some of you, if you have chronic pain, you know what this is all about. You finally get to sleep at night, and then in the morning you wake up, and, and maybe for a brief moment you think, oh, I feel pretty good. And then you get out of bed, and, and it takes you a little while. You start, uh, 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 
certainly then, you know, by, by the time you're at the foot of the bed, you, you've, you're actually moving a little bit and stuff. And then you stub your toe and it's all over. But, and so Asaph, he, he's, he says, every morning I'm plagued and, and chastened. I'm being dis- he, he saw his physical infirmity as some sort of a discipline. He, he was, uh, again, exaggerating, but he's, you know, this is Asaph's really, really bad, you know, kind of uh, under, understanding. I was going to say bad day, but bad year, bad decade, uh, where this is what his life was like. Verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. This is an interesting verse. It's, it's probably worthy of its own Bible study. I think I know what he means. Although deeply troubled, Asaph kept his thoughts to himself. How would it be for the worship leader of Israel to speak publicly about his opinions? Now, I'm not saying he doesn't write it down in the psalm. By the time he gets to the psalm, he has a complete understanding of what's going on. We'll see what his conclusion is. What he's saying is, when he's walking around Jerusalem and people say, Hey, Asaph, how you doing? He doesn't say, I'm I'm miserable. And you should be miserable too. The wicked are prospering. This is happening. That's happening. He doesn't bring people down. He, say, he says to God, how would that be for me to, to stumble people? Was he being untrue? Or in today's language, would we say that he lacked vulnerability or transparency? That he needed to let people in? Well, that's stupid. Remember verse 1. Asaph believed God was good all the time. And verse 2, he said he almost stumbled. In other words, these were deep inner struggles between himself and the Lord that need not spill over into the lives of others and risk stumbling them. Now, you, this is my personal opinion, and so you take it or leave it at that. But I, I think there's a place for repressing certain things. Now, some psychologists, I studied psychology, they would say, oh, no, that's good. You don't want to repress anything. You need to get it all out so that you don't have post-traumatic stress and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I said, but, you know, uh, I also remember where Jesus said, it'd be better for you that a 100-pound weight would be tied around your neck and you thrown into the deepest part of the ocean than you stumble one of my little ones. And so if I'm feeling like Asaph, if I, if I get up in the morning and I'm just miserable, and I look out my window and I see my neighbor, who's a wicked man, prospering, and my other neighbor across the street doing the same thing. And all of this starts flowing in me, and then you run into me, and I start to bitterly complain and drag you down into that mire with me. Uh, that's what Asaph's talking to say. I didn't do that. I had sense enough not to do that. And, and, uh, and he had God's help in not doing that. It would have been, he said, untrue to the current generation to stumble them with doubts he was working out. A servant thinks of others at all times and has God's grace to sustain him or her even in times of spiritual turmoil. And so I understand, hey, I I have spiritual turmoil. I'm not speaking out of turn here. I mean, we're all in this thing together. But God's grace is there to sustain us and we need to talk to the Lord and have him get us through that. And don't stumble your brothers and sisters. Uh, Now, you know, it doesn't mean you can't say that you're feeling bad or, you know, tell them your, your foot hurts, your back hurts, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm talking about the deep emotional, spiritual stuff that Asaph was getting to. Doubting God almost, you know, looking at the prosperity of the wicked. Yeah, be careful. 
when you talk to others about how, you know, you don't need to stumble others. Verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Asaph had been working on this problem for a long time. Over the years, I'm sure he'd come up with any number of seeming solutions. I'm sure things seemed much different when he was younger than they did now. Lately, all his reasonings led him to the same place, to pain of some kind. And so, all I can say is you see things differently as you get older, do you not? Those of you old men out there, admit it. If you have gray hair, you're an old man. Somebody stopped me in the store today and asked me if I had been dyeing my hair. I said, gray? (laughs) No. They said, well, no, some people, you know, they, they, uh, they do like a salt and pepper thing. No, I said, no, they don't. No, no one dyes their hair. No one dyes their hair gray. No one has a wonderful head of hair. I'd like it to be grayer. Crazy. Verse 7, it re- that really did happen to me today. Until I went into the sanctuary of God... Then I understood their end. What a, this is a phenomenal turning point, obviously, in the psalm. And a great, with a great economy of words, Asaph says, for years, for decades, I'm struggling with this. Then, or until, I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Now, Asaph had been going into the sanctuary of God on a more than regular basis for his entire life. This guy logged more sanctuary hours, more temple hours than probably anybody. Looking at his lifespan from the time he was in his early 20s through the reign of David, through the reign of Solomon to his old age. So he probably, uh, or he practically lived in the church, we would say. So it's possible that one day in the sanctuary, he had a revelation about the end of the wicked. You've probably had experiences like that at church. And, and you know, um, we believe that obviously the Lord is omnipresent. He's everywhere. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you. You're individually the temple of the Holy Spirit. But Paul also says that corporately we are the body of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus told the churches of the Revelation that they were like lampstands and he walked in their midst uh, when they were gathered together. And so we believe that there is a special manifesting of the presence of Jesus when we gather together as the church. And so it's, it's not untypical for someone to have the Lord speak to them in church. It's happened to, I would guess, all of you at one time or another, or I would hope it has where you hear just what you need to hear or you're directed to just the right scripture, those kinds of things. And so that could be what Asaph was talking about. It's more likely to me that he had an experience in which he understood that God himself was his sanctuary. Not that he went into the physical sanctuary, but that he understood that God was a sanctuary to him. Now, we speak of being the temple of the Holy Spirit But God is also our sanctuary. And Jeremiah 17, 12 reads, A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. In the Revelation, we're told after the consummation of all things that the New Jerusalem will have no temple. John says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
And so I think Asaph is having a revelation that God is his sanctuary. Not a building, but a person. I wish I was more of a mystic because I find it hard to describe what I'm saying, but I think you can understand. Your relationship with God transcends everything else. It's like the Apostle Paul stating that we are seated in heavenly places with Jesus. We're already there even as we are here on the earth having our trials and our tragedies. And so we're, we're here to, don't get me wrong, this isn't some weird philosophy 101 class. We're, we're actually here, sitting on these chairs, having a Bible study. But the Apostle Paul can say, at the same time, you can see yourself as already seated in heavenly places with Jesus Christ because we are so united with him. We're so one in Christ. He's the head, we're the body. He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and we are, spiritually speaking, seated there with him right now. And so Asaph is having that kind of an experience where he says he, 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 it, his, his heart is going to transcend his earthly experience. He's going to have a spiritual experience without anything really changing on the earth. He doesn't suddenly get healed. The wicked don't suddenly all get zapped out. The nation doesn't come back together. Nothing like that happens, but he changes. The wicked may seem to prosper, but their stories do not have a happy ending. That's what he realizes. He says, verse 18, Surely you've set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. So the wicked may seem to be walking carefree, but they are on dangerous ground and risk suddenly losing their footing and falling into perdition. While that may be, excuse me, while they may be eulogized on the earth and applauded for their lives, we know the scene in the afterlife is to their dismay. There is nothing, nothing more discouraging and disheartening and just downright sad than going to the funeral of a non-believer. Now, the Bible says that it is appointed unto men once to die and then comes judgment. So there's no second chance after death. I want, want to be clear about that. But I also want to say that I don't know that we're all, ever 100% sure that someone is a non-believer. We don't know what might happen in the moments before dying if there was an opportunity to receive Christ. Not, not a second chance after death. Nothing like that. Not any time in purgatory, nothing like that. But, you know, uh, I, I'm not ready to always declare that somebody is a non-believer. Now, some people, you're pretty sure they're not believers. They, they didn't receive the gospel. They won't pray with you. They, they curse God till the end. Um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, we want to be careful and all that. But nothing. there's nothing more sad than that. And I might, you know look at myself and think, well, man, I've got pains and aches and financial difficulties and emotional difficulties. Things aren't working out the way I would like them to work out. But God is still good, and I know my end. To die is gain. And, and, and one day I'll be with the Lord. And, and so if my neighbor gets to drive a Maserati while I'm reduced to a bicycle, uh, that's fine because that's the greatest thing that he's ever going to know. And it, it all pales in comparison to eternity. When God awakes to judgment, they'll be terrified. So verse 22, I was foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. 
Animals are dominated by the material world. They're all about their environment and their needs and their drives and their wants. When I look at the prosperity of the wicked, I'm failing to take into account any higher purpose for life than physical ease. I just want everything to be nice and good. I want to, you know, live healthily into my old age, die in my sleep, have all kinds of children and grandchildren and a successful ministry and money in the bank, you know, and those kinds of things. And, and Asaph says, yeah, that's kind of beastly in one sense. There's nothing wrong with, you know, planning for the future and trying to be a righteous individual, but he says, you know, those aren't the things that are important. 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. Asaph had been conducting himself as if God were a distant force that he was trying to analyze. All the while, the Lord was his constant companion, he says, holding his hand. This is, how tender is that? You have little kids, don't you just love to hold their hand? Especially the finger hold. I, I love, that's my favorite hold, the finger, just the, the one finger hold, you know, where their, their whole hand is around your finger. And of course, you're ready to grab the rest of their wrist, you know, in case they're running out into traffic. But it's a beautiful thing. You guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. You're guided by God along a path fraught with seeming inconsistencies and contradictions but he will get you safely to the glory of it afterward. Your light affliction, Paul said, is working, uh, it's but for a moment, working for you a far more exceeding weight of eternal glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth I desire beside you. That's a huge declaration. Asaph did have others in heaven, loved ones who had preceded him, and so do we. Plus we have rewards stored there, and add to that the absolute extravagance of heaven itself. But contemplating all of that, Asaph confidently declared that God was the one great treasure that he sought. Heaven itself and all that is in it is dwarfed by knowing God. And so he looked at the earth and he said, yeah, I, I shouldn't be so beast-like. There's nothing on earth that compares to you. And then he says, hey, by the way, there's nothing in heaven that compares to you either. There's no person I'm longing for. There's no mansion I'm looking towards. There's nothing else that makes it heaven except that Jesus is going to be there. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, he could just be talking spiritually here, but I think he meant that he had a heart attack or a stroke or congestive heart failure. But now he had been so rallied spiritually to care more about where he was headed than where he was at or had been. Verse 27, For indeed those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. Looking forward to eternity, all those who desert God for some harlotry will perish. Looking backward from our secure place in eternity, we draw near to God now, trusting in Him to perform all that He has promised despite what happens along the way. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. He, is, he held his tongue so as not to stumble others. Now he desires to declare God's works. So what do you and I see? Do we see the righteous suffering, the wicked prospering, evil seeming to get the upper hand? Well, we do, but what you see depends upon where you are looking. Look no further than your hand because the Lord is holding it. And then lift your gaze beyond the earth to heaven. 